From Infinite Guest, this is Top Score, a conversation with composers who write music for video games. I'm Emily Reese. It's the oldest conservatory of music in the West, churning out stars such as Isaac Stern, Aaron J. Kernis, and Yehudi Menuhin. Later this year, the San Francisco Conservatory of Music starts a program targeted at a new generation of stars, video game composers. In March, I was in San Francisco for the Game Developers Conference, and I spent an afternoon at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music learning about their new Technology and Applied Composition program. The music you'll hear during this episode was composed by Dren McDonald and recorded and produced by conservatory students for the game Gathering Sky, which comes out in June. As far as humans, you'll first hear the voice of the Associate Dean of New Media and Music Technology, Mary Claire Bristois. The program is called Technology and Applied Composition. There's um, a four-year undergraduate program, which ends up with a bachelor's of music composition and a one-year professional studies degree for people who have already had their musical training but would like to acquire technology skills. Um, and the focus of the program is mostly composition, um, learning composition in a traditional way. First two years, they're at the piano. They're learning all of the stuff you expect to learn at a conservatory and a composition program, looking at the canon, but also looking at the modern canon, if you will. So we're going to be analyzing film music, we'll be analyzing game scores, game music, sort of looking at process and methodology, as well as just learning the nuts and bolts of, of composition. In the third and fourth years, they start to do more uh, project-based things with technology, using the recording studio as a tool, um, learning software, a little bit of programming, MX MSP and some uh, game audio implementation. Was there any kind of pushback from traditional classicists who were <laughs> really interested in acoustic music? I mean, was there any kind of controversy? There was concern. I, wouldn't, I would not say pushback. I would say, you know, the people who teach here at the conservatory dedicate their lives to their craft and to passing that tradition on. And they want to make sure that this program is of a high value and of a high merit. So there was a lot of, I would say there was intense conversations about what it should be and what the goals are. Sort of, we looked at what are, what are we? What are we, what are we trying to say about ourselves? They, they saw a need and a unique niche for San Francisco here in the Bay Area in this sort of tech-heavy environment. And, you know, there is a lot of crossover with some of these tools and processes and techniques into more esoteric concert music. So it, it seems a likely choice. And for the most part, I wouldn't say it was controversial. I'd say we put a lot of thought into it, though, collectively. It, what That was one of the things that kind of came to mind for me is how much does this stray from 
a traditional composition course in 2015, because in 2015, you got to imagine that composition students are learning how to construct their compositions electronically before they present them on stage, right? Yes. Well, there's, there, so there's a spectrum of electronic music making. And that spectrum, there's a spectrum within the concert music world, that, and there's a spectrum within the sort of art for art's sake to the commercial realm. So uh, a lot of our grad students, they, they are making interactive music for the hall. They are learning at Maxim SP. They're incorporating um, recordings into their concert music sonic material that they're manipulating in a DAW. So there's that approach, but there's also sort of, uh, you know, mock-ups, digital mock-ups. If they can't have their piece performed by an orchestra, they can make a really convincing artificial version of it, which might enable them to go out and sell the piece and actually get it performed by a real orchestra. So the skills are comprehensive, but their application, there's a wide spectrum of their application. And I think the goal of this program and one of the things we really talked about was not creating any kind of schism uh, within the students who are composing for the hall and the students who are into this sort of modern technology stuff. We really want them cross-pollinating. We want them collaborating and we want the performers to be involved as well. first came to work at the conservatory, we had an electronic music program that was one class, essentially. We had an electronic music room at the conservatory since 1967. And it was, a, it was an interesting collection of instruments throughout the ages, in a way, electronic music instruments. Some of them we've kept, like this expander here, this Oberheim expander. It actually has presets that date back to the 80s. And before that, we had a, a bukla, like a 1967 bukla, which I'll show you. It's in a safe space right now because it's getting a little bit of a rehab. But when we first got here, this room was essentially a 30-year-old mixing console, a giant pile of dusty cables and a bunch of old instruments. And when we decided we were going to launch this new program, we needed to redesign the space and create an actual studio for the new program to live in and for the students to work in. So all the rooms are actually networked to the halls. So you can patch any sound going on in the concert hall down to any of these rooms. And you could have a student down here running a session or learning how to do, making their own music, recording their own music. This is the chair of composition at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, composer David Conti. You know, it was something that President Stahl, I think, was keenly aware of, and all of us who've been in the kind of classical end of things know, is that the traditional classical arts organizations like symphonies, opera companies, conservatories, ballet companies, it's been hard for them to get to the tech money. Those people aren't like the Guggenheims and, and Rockefellers and the Mellons and, you know, people who endowed different kinds of institutions, and, um, but they're interested in media, and when then we can interface with that, then they become interested in what we're doing. And of course, we're hoping, and this is a controversial thing because you know there, there's always a kind of purist, and I believe me, I, I 
consider myself in some ways, you know, I want to be a guardian of certain standards of classical music making. But at the same time, we can't ignore what's happening in the world, nor I think we should be involved in actually shaping it rather than just saying, let's step back and they're going to do what they do and we'll do what we do. No, rather, let's lead. see something in a hall, it's in some way it's interdisciplinary. There's multi-video projection in opera now, there's 3D modeling and 3D printing for set design, and you know, a lot of people, really interesting artists are interested in collaborating with one another outside of their chosen discipline and field, and I think to to what David said, we want to be leading the way in that respect. We don't want to be siloing ourselves or to teaching our, more importantly, teaching our students to silo themselves. I think my hope, my biggest hope for the program, we'll be engaging with technology. We'll be having really nuanced conversations about the arts and technology, and we'll be giving the students foundational concepts for how to engage with technology that will help them evolve into the future, whatever they choose to do. So that it's not so much, I went to San Francisco Conservatory and I learned Pro Tools version 6.51, whatever, but that they learn the underlying concepts so that whatever the tool of the day is, they can adapt to it quickly, they can learn it quickly, and that they have something to say artistically that underlies whatever changes out in the world. I think that's my biggest hope for the program. I don't know about you, David. It's interesting. Just as I was leaving the house to come down here, I teach classes in film music here to the grad students, and I'm hoping to make the kinds of things I teach available in some way to the tech kids. We're not sure how that's going to work, but one of the greatest films ever made, which has, in my opinion, if I can have an opinion, the greatest film score ever written, was on. It was the last scene, The Streetcar Named Desire. Alex North score in the final scene when Vivian Lee leaves. You know, I've always relied on the kindness of strangers, and I know the score so well and have taught it. I was thinking how, you know, narrative storytelling, what musicians can, what composers can do often involves storytelling. And even the, uh, the rhetorical devices of the most serious forms, like sonata form, come from opera and come from human drama and conflict and character and how characters are presented and how they interact. And this is something that we can teach. It's something that interests me very much um, in our concert music program. We try and teach our composers to work with text, which is not something that's done really that much, actually. In, in the academy in the United States. And so I see that um, there can be this wonderful, again, as David Stahl has charged us to create, a kind of culture of composing that is very wide and broad in its reach and that we can be turning out you know, composers who are so versatile and really contribute you know, to their whatever various art forms they're working in.
Here is David Stoll, the president of the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. For musicians now, there really was these pathways were opening up for them to really create their own ensembles, to market themselves and work in ways that actually didn't exist 30, 40 years ago. In other words, if you weren't going to make it in a string quartet by winning a Naumburg competition, you were unlikely to be in a successful chamber group. Whereas that's not the case today. On the other hand, yes, there were more major orchestras perhaps in a, to a certain degree, but not by a high number. Uh, but that was really considered to be the path, that or an opera company or some large organization. The other side of it was, was the advent of technology. Again, I think most people saw that as you know, the collapse of the recording industry as we understand it. So Tower Records no longer exists. And obviously, it's a great institution, and I love going to Tower Records. And it was a lot of fun. But the truth of the matter is, is you had to be in New York or Chicago to have that experience. Yeah. In other words, if you were living in Oberlin, Ohio, let's say, you know, you were desperate to get recordings on a regular basis because you couldn't. And now, you know, the democracy of that availability of great music in unlimited quantities across an entire spectrum is really spectacular. I mean, you can be, you know, an eighth grader in Kodiak, Alaska, and be all about the new Ligeti recording by the International Contemporary Ensemble. You know, that's a possibility now that didn't exist. So I just see it through a different kind of a lens. And in that way, uh, the, the Technology Applied Composition Program is, is really envisioned to give classically trained artists the opportunity to work in a much broader array of disciplines and a much broader array of media. And I think when you look at this uh, growing culture of gaming, that games, in fact, can represent almost operatic environments, that you can begin to think of them as like the Gesamtkunstwerk of the 21st century. You really can. Now, with the younger generation, it's mostly about, yeah, killing people on walls, running over them with cars, you know, or kidnapping them out of banks. But more and more, you know, games for outliers are being produced. People are seeking these kinds of experiences, and there's a sonic world that unfolds with that. And the opportunity for art making is great within those environments. And they need artists, not just hummers or technicians or people come up with some little theme that they attach, but somebody who might imagine a full-blown, realized environment of sound. And that's driven by someone who's a real artist, someone who understands art, has the context of the canon at their fingertips, along with the fact that, yes, they know all about, you know, <laughs> death metal, Led Zeppelin, hip-hop, you know, and bluegrass. I mean, that's on their palette sheet, but they just have a much wider lens for what music is and can be and see it as a, a collaborative opportunity.
think as gamers age, their fascination with, you know, Uzi with a 64 bullet bag, I mean, they'll probably still have that somewhere in the computer, but they're probably going to branch out as far as the kinds of things they're interested in, and they're going to want an experience that has more depth. And my suspicion is that is an opportunity where great artists can bring these, these kinds of things to life. So I see it as not just a practical effort, I see it as a necessary effort for advancing art itself. And that's what led to the inception of this program. So I'm a gamer and a musician. There was a fairly long stretch of my childhood where I didn't game, probably because I'm a female and my parents didn't, I, who knows, who knows. But let's just say that when I came back to gaming, I noticed a huge difference in the music. And that's what kind of, I think, planted the seed for me to want to learn more about the way music is used in games and, and film and all of this too. So my very long question for you is, when did you realize that this was a viable art form? Because in the 80s, I don't think any of us, you know, casually would have assumed that video game music would become an art form, even though back then there, it had artistic merits as well. But when did that change happen for you? How did that pivot happen? You know, I think it's a, the benefit, obviously, of, of having children, I'll be very honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't want to come up with the fact that I departed on my own on a deep intellectual investigation of this. It's just when you have children, and I have two daughters, and they're now 14 and 11, you know, we have video games in the house, we play, and I play with them. And uh, one of the games that they would consistently play would be Star Wars, one of their favorite. I mean, for whatever reason, this sort of Legos version of Star Wars, and then occasionally we'd play a Wii game and those kinds of things. And I started really observing, you know, uh, having grown up with, say, film music and someone like Williams writing for that, who, you know, is obviously influenced by these great orchestral works of the 19th century and obviously a fan of... I would guess Shostakovich. Well, I don't. I know John, so I know he's a fan of Shostakovich and Holst, and you know has these great sonic environments in his head and writes brilliantly in these, in these various media. You're seeing it now unfolding in a game form, and then you're seeing the girls, you know, kind of following this and listening to the games and really interested in these odysseys. And the fact is, they are odysseys. You know, we might suggest that a, a Wagner opera is five hours long, and how could we imagine some people saying sitting through that? But if left alone, someone will play a game perhaps for five hours. And it is multiple levels of experience and the levels change and uh, quite specifically the music changes as the user interacts with this environment. And I was observing this interaction and what turns out to be not a short attention span but actually a relatively long attention span around an activity. And it's uh, something that's, you know, we've talked about length of concerts, length of orchestral works. As you look at the fact that popular music is three minutes long, suddenly here's this game culture that is all about transitioning to a level beyond where you are. Mm -hmm. So it's not the repetition of the same experience. It's an advancement or, I should say, an expansion of the experience over a time frame. And for the more interesting games that they would play, I recognize that there's light motif going on characters have themes. These themes come in and out. And I thought, how interesting is that? You know, to not only imagine 
writing a score for a game, but also recognizing the score at any one time may be different because as these ideas emerge, you're going to have a change in music. And recognize that, that really there's a deep complexity of that. Thank you so much for your time. I'm honored you would come and, and spend time with us. We're excited about the program. And clearly, any chance to be able to tell the world about it is great for us. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Top Score from Infinite Guest. You can learn more about the San Francisco Conservatory of Music and see a full playlist from this episode at infiniteguest.org. Top Score's production assistant is Pierce Huxtable, and Mark Hintz mixes each episode. Top Score is supported in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. Follow Top Score on Twitter and Facebook at Top Score Podcast. That's Top Score. I'm Emily Reese. <laughs>